Well, good morning, church. Hope you guys are doing good. Uh, like Josh said, let's grab our Bibles. If you will, go not to Ephesians chapter 6, but go to Ephesians chapter 1. No, you haven't done a good enough job in Ephesians, so I'm going to make you start over. That's not why I'm taking you all the way back to the beginning today. But as we get ready to tackle this topic of spiritual warfare, it is imperative that we actually go back and remember some of the things that God's word tells us about who we are in Christ. Because if we don't know who we are in Christ, if we're not able to kind of lean into the magnitude of what Paul expresses to us, inspired by the word of God in chapter one, then good luck knowing how to fight, knowing where this fight is gonna take place, knowing these things. So it's, it's knowing how much God has fought for you and how we are fighting from victory, not for victory, that will actually enable us to put on the full armor of God and stand firm against the active enemy and his schemes. All right, so if you will, grab your Bible, or if you're on your phone, go on your phone to Ephesians chapter 1. Hopefully this deep dive into the book of Ephesians has been edifying for you. And I want to take some time before we move on to what God has for us next and lean into some topics around the season of Christmas. I want to take us to Ephesians 1 and just sit and rest in these words and let them remind us of these crazy, unimaginable truths that are here in God's word. So if you got a Bible, Ephesians chapter one, you've heard me say this before many times. Um, I'm going to say some things today, but without a doubt, what we're getting ready to do as we, as a body of Christ, gather around the word of God, this is, and this will be the most important words that are spoken. If you could grasp and lean into and, and, and hold true of these things, you don't really need the rest of what I'm going to do. And what I want you to see here as we especially dive into Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1 is the gospel. If you ever wonder, like, what in the world is the gospel? Read Ephesians chapter 1 and you will get the gospel. Here are the words that I hope you hear with fresh ears today for how powerful they are. Let's lean in. Extended portion of reading here. Please follow along. Matter of fact, here we go. Holy Spirit, will you allow your people, to have drawn to their attention what you long to draw their attention to as we read your word. Father, we didn't just show up to hear um, a motivational talk. We believe that this moment right now is actually created people hearing from the words of their almighty, omnipotent, ever-present Father who is God of the universe, who has no beginning and who has no end and wrote these words through an apostle named Paul for a church in Ephesus and for a church here today in McDonough. So bring to light what you need each and every one of us to see. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who the first hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints." What is the immeasurable greatness to, of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named not only in this age but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. That's the gospel. If you heard nothing else today, you heard that. Now, let's flip to chapter 6. And in light of this gospel, in light of the things that hopefully you picked up on in there, that you have an inheritance in Christ, and you have that inheritance because you have been predestined for adoption. You've been adopted. If you're in Christ, you were adopted into a family. Jesus paid for that adoption by the redemption of his blood that you have been given this Holy Spirit as a promise of the inheritance and that this Jesus Christ, he is seated at the right hand in the heavenly places and that, here's a wild one, every spiritual blessing is going to be, is made available to you in Christ, in the heavenly places. All these things. Magnitude of the gospel here in chapter one. And then go chapter six. Despite how amazing, how beautiful and how wonderful it is, there is an active enemy and Paul begins to talk to us about him Chapter 6, go to verse 10, and we'll read through verse 20. Finally, in light of all the things I've said thus far, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me, opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may boldly declare as I ought to speak. This is the word of God. Let's pray. We'll dive in. Father, we thank you for this word. And as we've navigated through it, these bookends of this amazing letter that we have been given, I pray now that you would allow what we have heard to be true in our lives, to inspire us and to change us and transform us to in our innermost beings so that who we are on the outside matches who you have made us to be on the inside. Jesus, I know that today there's an active, real, and ever-present enemy who sees everything that's happening today, who hates everything that will happen today because today your gospel will be preached. Today your word has been opened. Today people have seen the truth that can only be found in you and the father of lies hates that. We pray against him. We pray against distraction. We pray against all the baggage that he would love to bring up to the sons and daughters of the king today. And I pray that they're reminded, God, of who they are in Christ. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and ask. Amen. The day was Tuesday. It was June 6, 1944, 6.30 a.m. And on that day, 5,000 ships carrying 160,000 Allied troops approached the southern beaches in France for the largest invasion in modern military history. This is the day that we now refer to as D-Day. And some of the men who survived that day remember the words coming across the intercom speakers on the boats moments before they hit the beaches of Normandy. They said, fight to get your troops ashore. Fight to save your ships. And if you've got any strength left, fight to save your life. One said, we may die on the sands of France, but we will never turn back. And over 2,500 American soldiers died that day and many in a span of about 15 minutes. As the boats reached the shores, soldiers literally had to crawl over bodies of other soldiers in order to make it onto those beaches. And images like this make us thankful for men and women who have given their lives for the cause of freedom. But the main reason I share that with you this morning is to emphasize the reality that the men who approached those beaches that morning had no delusion, guys, about what they were getting themselves into. Not one of those soldiers thought that they were going into a vacation day at the beach. They knew that they were walking headfirst into the onslaught of an enemy who wanted to do nothing more than to see their complete and utter destruction. And here, at the end of the book of Ephesians, Paul is pulling the curtain back after having told them who they are in Christ, after giving them very, very detailed and boots on the ground information about how to live out this new Christian life, Paul pulls the curtain back and says, don't get it twisted. This is the life that God is giving to you. This is the life God wants to provide for you. It is an amazing life. But friends, there is an active, wholehearted, active enemy who's waging all out war to make this reality one that you never experienced, that your kids never experienced, the future generations of the church never experience. And the tragedy is, many of us this morning, we may have shown up in the exact opposite place that the soldiers on the beaches of Normandy did. 
See, they knew what they were getting themselves into. They knew they were in the midst of war. And many people this morning, we show up, we come to church, we do life, we go nine to five, we watch ball games, and we get ready for Christmas, and we fail to ever realize that we are in the middle of a war, an unseen spiritual war, where our enemy is far greater than any axis of evil. Our enemy is far greater than any country. Our enemy is far greater than any ideology. Our enemy is the evil. And we are in the middle of this cosmic war between good and evil. And you are what's in the middle. Your family is what's in the middle. Your mind is what's in the middle. Your eternity is what's in the middle. And so Paul is waking the church up to this, to realize that from this moment forward, like when you walk out of this living room, we all read through this passage, we all read through this thing. And and when you walk out of the living room, this church in Ephesus, and you walk out of the church, you church at McDonough, when you walk into whatever is life, you've got to understand that there's an active enemy who longs to kill everything good that God would bring about in your life. And here's what you need to understand, and we're going a little bit into the the theology of evil here. Here's why Satan hates what I just read in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul, maybe better than anywhere else in all of the canon of scripture, explains two things to the church. He explains your identity in Christ and your inheritance from God. And those are two things that the enemy Satan absolutely hates and longs to see you never fully experience. He hates the fact that you have the identity that you have in Christ, that you are sons and daughters of Christ. Remember, Satan, if you go back a little bit into scripture and you begin to dive into who he is, how he got where he is, Satan was an angel of light. His name was Lucifer. And as an angel, he wanted to be praised. He wanted glory that he saw the Father getting. And so he led this rebellion of one-third of all the angels in heaven. Again, I know I'm blowing some of you guys' minds at this point. But he leads this giant rebellion. Doesn't really go well. Doesn't go well at all. God banishes him out of the kingdom of heaven, sends him in here to what is our realm. And since that moment, he's been doing everything he can to, as a defeated enemy, cause much defeat for these creatures that God, for some reason, loves, called human beings. And he hates the reality that the God-man, Jesus, gave his life for people like me and you, so what we read about in Ephesians 1s can be our reality, that we could be redeemed by the blood, that we could be called sons and daughters, that we can have a secure inheritance. He hates that because he sees our identity as people who do not deserve to be with that God. And he hates the fact that he can no longer be with that God. He hates the fact that he is not a God who gets worship like that God gets. And the other aspect of that is he hates your inheritance. See, what you don't understand is when Scripture says every spiritual blessing made available in the heavenly places is yours if you're in Christ. Now, just breathe that in for a second, all right? I don't know what you think about God, but if God, and whatever, take whatever you think about him, if he really in his word said, if you're in Christ, every spiritual blessing is yours in the heavenly places. It's made available to you. It is yours. In your finite human mind, you know what you can't do? You have no idea what that looks like. You have no idea what that is. But do you know who does understand all the blessings that are available in the heavenly places? One who's been there, Lucifer. He knows the blessings that are coming to you. He knows what an inheritance you have in store. He knows that you've been given a Holy Spirit. There's a seal and a promise of what that blessing is. And so he seeks to do everything he can to rob and get you to miss out on and not experience and keep your kids from ever experiencing what is your God-given identity and your God-given inheritance. He is after you never experiencing those things. And one of the ways he does that is through the church. 
One of the ways he does that through the church is he gets people to buy into this lie that the church is this. Cruise ship church. <laughs> this thing exists, this body of Christ, this, this, this gathering of saints, it exists for you to come in and just have your needs met. It exists for you to come in and take all your predisposed uh, things that you enjoy and like. Oh man, no worries. You don't like Japanese food. You know what we got? We got 33 restaurants. Take your pick. We got a buffet of things that you can go be a part of. You don't like swimming in regular swimming pools. We got a tide pool for you adventurous folks. We got this for you. We'll be coming by to make sure that we meet your needs that we have everything made available to reach your needs so that you feel happy and next season you come back. We wanna keep you coming back, so we're gonna do everything that we can to make this a pleasurable lifestyle and experience because the mission of the cruise ship is to make you feel good. You been to that church before? And I think if Boss Paul was here, I think he would say, no, 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 we're not a cruise ship. So you're not a consumer, you're, you're a contributor. And if I think he was going to give us a different metaphor, he would say, no, this, this is more or less what you are. You're a warship. It's not about what you need or what you want. It's about the mission. The mission governs everything that we do. We will sacrifice amenities to make sure that we're on mission. We will follow commander's intent. And no, that's not a lead pastor. The commander's intent is Jesus' words himself. They will be the guiding thing. They will be what we let be fully supreme for us. We're not going off of what you think should be done. We're not going off of should we do this or should we do that. We're going off where does the word lead us? And how do we act in accordance to that? How do we lay down our lives to serve the greater cause? And these are the things I believe he would lean into us. And it's in the backdrop of that analogy that I would take us now to Ephesians 12, you got a Bible, I meant to say 10, go to Ephesians 10. It's where he jumps in and begins this concept. He says, finally, again, after everything I've already said, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So let's unpack, first of all, he knows there's an active enemy. As he's setting this up, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So our strength is where? In the Lord. And our might is his. So what this means is there's a real life, unseen battle that is happening right now. And the only way you survive is not from your own self-discipline. The only way you survive is not because you're good at life. The only way you survive this battle is if there's an outside source of strength and power that you find into your life. This is why you have to be in Christ to withstand this battle that is coming. And that's why Christ, God, his power, his strength has to be inside of you for you to even make it at all. So what he's saying here is you've got to get something that is outside of you, inside of you, or you're not going to make it. And this thing that you have to get from outside of you to inside of you, the way that you grasp and take hold of this strength that's from the Lord, this might that is from the Lord, is the way you do this is you put on this armor of God. Now, I wish that I could spend 10 more weeks unpacking piece by piece every aspect and every detail of the armor of God. But the good news is I've already done that. And the reason we're not going to go into every single detail and spend years and years and years, or not years, spend weeks and weeks and weeks going through all that is because last year, it's crazy, even this time last year, we were in a series called At War, where if those of you who are here, we actually already have done this. 
And so I would say it's a great resource to you if this piques an interest, if it's this idea of, man, I want to make sure that I'm more spiritually prepared for the spiritual warfare that's going on around me. If that is something that's like driving in your brain and you feel like the Holy Spirit is leading you, I encourage anybody, go back and listen to that series. We go into great detail. Talk about the origins of Satan. Talk about big theological things like what is faith? What is justification? How does salvation happen? What is righteousness? We lean into all those things. Today, I'm going to give you much more of a broad stroke kind of overview of spiritual warfare and how to stand and how to fight. And we're going to walk through the pieces of the armor. But what I want you to understand is those resources are there for us to be able to fight this fight and not just to fight it, but I believe to be victorious. So in verse 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against the rulers, or we wrestle actually against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic power. So he's saying, we're not fighting people. We're, we're fighting these forces that exist in the heavenly places, powers over the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in these heavenly places. Now remember, where did Paul say our blessings were? In the heavenly places. Where, where did Paul say Jesus was seated? High and above in the place of authority in the heavenly places. So this is where this battle, this is where this war is really taking place. Now, he's saying we're wrestling against this, but we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. And this word wrestle here is really this word for like grappling. It's not like, a, I don't know, think about like there's WCW wrestling and then there's Olympic wrestling, right? And WCW wrestling, sometimes you get far away from your guys. Sometimes you're close to your guys. Sometimes you're, you're giving them an elbow drop off the top turnbuckle. But USA wrestling, like Olympic wrestling, and my, I have an eight-year-old who's just now started wrestling. Um, and what's cool is Josh Wright is his children's pastor and his wrestling coach. So that's, that's really cool. But one of the things that I've learned as just a dad sitting and watching wrestling is like, you're just really up close and personal with folks. All right. I mean, like those boys are just there, you know, and you know, and you go on and I, I will try to watch some videos about wrestling to try to learn some stuff. Cause I feel like I'm just completely out of my, like, I don't know anything about this thing that is wrestling. And you're watching these videos and I'm watching videos of like two college dudes wrestling. And I'm like, this is just weird. I don't feel like I should be watching this. Like, this is strange. <laughs> And then, I get, and then I get to practice and like, I'm asking Josh questions about stuff. And Josh is like, well, let me show you. You know, you, know how, you guys have been around Josh. Like, he's like, let me show you, man. And he's like down here and, he, and he's it's like, Josh, you should not be at that place in my body. Like, Josh, get your hands off my thighs, brother. Um, like, but, 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 but that's what I believe Paul is trying to get the church in Ephesus to realize that, that this grappling, that, 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 that this is an enemy who is up close and personal. We're not firing shots over the bar. There's no scud missiles that, that we're going to drop. And this is a up close quarter contact with a non, with an asymmetrical enemy who's trying to do everything he can to kill you. He's saying, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Now let's pause right there. What that's not saying is that these spiritual dark forces will never manifest themselves in human beings. He's not saying you're never going to bump into a person who's going to have evil be what is leading them and guiding them so that you don't have to stand for yourself in the presence of a, a, an evil person or a person who has evil working in their life. The way I would put it is like this, is you will see evil in a person and the evil things that that person does is the fruit, but the root of that evil is coming from Satan. And how Satan has tapped in, we're going to get into this more in a second, how Satan has tapped into their fallen flesh. And they have given him plenty to work with. And since they gave him so much to work with, he is using them as a vessel through which his evil can come. And we will at times have to stand our ground and we have to wage war in, in certain unique spiritual ways against that type of evil that may manifest itself in people. But what he's primarily saying is, that's the fruit. The real root 
Satan and all of the dark forces that exist in this world. That's who we're really fighting against. And so what this means for us, people are not the problem. We're going to say this again together because there's a runoff happening. If you haven't noticed, if you've lived in a cave for the last 17 years, I don't know. Like, it's so wild. Um, here what's, here's what you need to know. People are not the problem. Problems may manifest themselves through people, but the root of the problem is not a person. And if you deem the other person on the other side of the aisle, on the other side of the news media, on the other side of your opinion on something, if you deem them as the enemy, you know what you're probably not going to do. Long pray and hope that they would give their lives fully surrendered to Christ because they're a villain in your story. I love, and I don't know where he got this from, but my five-year-old, maybe it's from Hero Stories, I don't know what it is. One of the prayers that we find on a recurring basis that he says, and I don't know where, this did not come from me. Jesus, help the bad guys to be good guys. From the mouths of children. Help the bad guys be good guys. And so what Paul is saying here, I don't think he would come and say, don't ever think that anybody is a vessel through which evil can flow. Because he's talking to a church who is under the thumb of Rome. But what he's trying to get them to do is as they're getting ready to burn you at the stake, to say the same things that Jesus said. Father, forgive them. They know what they do. Now, I don't need something to drink, but maybe that guy over there needs something to drink. Yeah, this is painful and torturous, but how can I pray for you? See, see Paul knew that we were gonna wage war, but he also knew that that war was going to be unseen, driven by the unseen. So he leans into this truth about Satan. And I don't have time to, to truly go in a deep dive life study of who Satan is. But the best thing I can tell you about Satan is what Jesus said about Satan. It's John 8, 44. He said he is a murderer. He's not just out bad things happening. He is after death. After death. If you're dead, you don't get an inheritance. If you're dead, your identity has stopped. He's after death. He's been a murderer from the beginning. That's his origin story, murder. He's not holding on to the truth. There's no truth in him. Nothing, there, there, is no, there are no half-truths with Satan. There's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar. He's the father of lies. Lies find their origin in Satan. So I want to quickly walk you through his strategy, because he has a strategy. He has a scheme. I want to walk you through this. First stage is temptation. Now, when you think about Satan and the way he works on people, when it comes to temptation and, and how we wage war against the enemy, I would say don't necessarily think of this spiritual warfare and this armor of God we've got to get on like saving Private Ryan or Black Hawk Down warfare. The warfare that we fight with Satan is much more asymmetrical. It is as if Satan is a hacker in St. Petersburg, Russia, who you've never met, you've never seen, you don't even know he exists, but he sees every unique aspect of your life. He hears every word you say to your kids. He sees everything you look at on social media. He even sees the things you kind of pause and zoom in on. He knows every purchase you've ever made in your entire life. He knows the biggest lie that you've ever told, and he knows the biggest lie that you've ever had spoken over you. He knows all of those things. And what he does is he has all of this in this Satan supercomputer brain that him and all of the legions of his devil armies know, and he curates exactly what he needs to do next 
off of everything you've already done. That's somebody asked me sometimes, Satan, can Satan read our mind and hear our thoughts? I said, no, he doesn't have to. He sees your actions. And he's been doing this long enough that he doesn't have to know what your thoughts are because he sees all your actions and can tell what you're thinking. He's good at his game. Because of that, he knows exactly the same way all the ads know what to market to you that they're not going to market to me. He knows exactly what sin and temptation to market to you because of your proclivities, because of what you've experienced, because of your, your vulnerabilities. He knows exactly what to market to you, not just what, but he also knows when. He'll wait till you get laid off to send a temptation. He'll wait till you're a little bit hungry to get in temptation. He'll wait till you're in traffic, amen, to send you some temptation. <laughs> He'll wait. He knows the timing that you are most susceptible. And again, this is not because he's in your head. This is not because he knows your thoughts. This is because he sees everything that you do and he keeps a perfect record of it. And so he knows what temptation that you'll fall to that I never would. He knows what temptation I'd fall to that you never would. And so he sends it right to you. And then once he gets you to bite hook, line, and sinker, from there, he makes this thing look so awesome, all right? So great. So th- there's no way that this could ever be a bad thing. And from there... He gets you to bite, and then immediately his tone switches. Oh, my goodness. Look at you. How could a Christian ever do that? You, you, you're such a hypocrite. You felt this. You felt you sin and do the thing that you thought was going to be good, that you thought was going to bring that temporary pleasure. And maybe it did for like five seconds. But after that, what did you feel? A tsunami of shame. That's not manufactured. That's not a coincidence. That's accusation from Satan directly to you. You're gross. That's disgusting. How could you, how could you, you're supposed to be a Christian. You're an elder? You've been going to church for how long? You send your kids to Christian school and you just said that? Wow. And what he's trying to do there, he's trying to get you to be ashamed. See, what God, look, we're all going to do stupid things. God wants us to do stupid things, and he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we feel guilty about those things and repent and turn and go the opposite direction. Guilt is a good thing. Shame is a terrible, bad thing. Shame wages war on our identity where guilt wages war on our activity. God wants our activity to change. He wants us to be holy. Satan wants our identity to be robbed, and so he has accusations not against our activity. He has accusations against our identity. That's why he says, you're gross. You're a bad father. Why would a good, a good dad would never do that? Lose his mind on his kids. A good wife, she would never do that. Accusations. He wants to attack your identity. And then when he does that, he wants you to feel as, as uh, cruddy as possible so that you begin to isolate yourself. Oh, man, I just blew it in my marriage this week. So you don't even, you don't even try to do a date night blown it this week. What's the, what's the point? We're going to spend the first 30 minutes just kind of faking it? Well, I've had a terrible week full of just sin and giving in to the lust of my flesh, lied. I just have a terrible week. And yeah, they texted me asking if I was coming to small group tonight, but I don't want to have to go to small group and pretend like everything's okay. I don't want to go to small group. I have to be a hypocrite in front of everybody. Yeah, it'd be great to go to church. I, yeah, I, maybe I want to go to church, but like people are, I know if I go there, those weird McDonald Christian people are going to ask me how I'm doing. And I don't want to add another sin of lying to them on top of the, all the sins I've already done all week long. I'm just going to stay home. 
You felt this right. Close. And then once he does all that, he gets you isolated. And then you've seen the animal kingdom, right? Like you've watched National Geographic. What does the isolated animal from the herd have happened to it? <laughs> it gets eaten alive. I, I, I'm not going to share that story with you. That's really graphic. We watch a lot of graphic stuff at our house as far as National Geographic. That, I mean, my, my family put the graphic in National Geographic. Like, we, I mean, there are some things I'm like, we probably shouldn't be watching this. That elephant just has a tusk. Written, you know. Anyway, um, <laughs> those are all things that my kids watch. I, I don't know. Maybe it's better than the other stuff they could see. At least it's real life. Um, he wants to get you isolated from the herd so that he can take you out because his ultimate goal is murder. That he's been a murderer from the beginning. It didn't say he's been a tempter from the beginning. It didn't say he's been an accuser from the beginning. It didn't say he's been an isolator from the beginning. It says from the beginning, he's been a what? Murderer. That's his ultimate goal. That's what he's really after. I want to kill you. I want the legacy that could have came through your family to not. I want to kill your witness at work. I want to kill everything about what God wants to do in your life. I want to kill it. And that's his goal. And that's his strategy. And so... What we do here is, main thing, we realize, how amazing, or we realize how powerful he is. We realize how dangerous he is. But we realize that his temptation to us is limited. All right? Paul in the book of Romans helps us understand that our primary enemy, listen to me here, our primary enemy is actually not Satan. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. All right, track me. I'm glad we can kind of point stuff out here. For if who? You. If you live according to the flesh, who? You will die. You lived according to the flesh, and you die. It's you who did it. So I believe what Paul is expressing through Romans here, and I think would lean into and explain to us as well, is that Satan can only work with what you give him. And the thing that we are all, because of sin nature, all predisposed to is a broken, fallen flesh that craves things it should not crave, whether that's power, whether that's money, whether that's sex, whether that's food. It craves things it should not crave and goes around God's law, rule, and regulation to get those things in sinful ways. And Satan knows that we have this flesh. And so his temptation is all in tune with our flesh's desires. He gives us the temptation that perfectly matches up with our flesh. And that's why here he says, if you live according to the flesh and you listen to his lies and obey what he's saying, he says, that is the surefire way to die. But then he says, but if by the spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now that misdeeds of the body, that's talking about your fleshful cravings, all those things that you want to do that you should not do. The only way they get put to death is how? By your own good deeds? By coming to church every week, every time we open the doors? By tithing? By raising good Christian kids? No, the only way you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh is by the Spirit. That's the only way they die. And this is why, this is what sanctification is, this is what faith is, this is why he said, 
The Holy Spirit is a sign and seal that you will receive your inheritance because it is by the Holy Spirit and it is only by the Holy Spirit that all those things of your flesh will be killed away so that you eventually at some point in your life will stand before God sanctified and Satan will have nothing left to work with because when people see you, they don't see you in your flesh anymore. They see Jesus because all those old parts are your way of thinking, all those old parts are your way in encountering conflict, all those old ways of spending money, all those ways of parenting, of talking, all those old ways have died and they've been sanctified. And all that's left of you is Jesus. And there's none of you. And Satan doesn't have anything left to work with anymore. And so what this means, guys, is that if we want real peace, then you've got to wage war. You've got to wage war against yourself. There's a book uh, called A Banquet in the Grave by a guy named Ed Welch. There's an amazing quote, one of my uh, quotes to live by here. And he's talking about this war that we're not just, you go to churches and they'll be like, man, we just got to fight against Satan. We got to stand our ground against Satan. Yes, for sure. But at the end of the day, guys, we give him what to work with. Any authority he has in our life is because we give it to him. So the person we really need to wage war again, against is our weak, half-hearted attempts at living a life for Christ. We've got to realize that anything he has is because we surrendered it to him. Ed Welch in this book, he's talking about the spiritual warfare. If you've ever struggled with a habit that you have not been able to kick, listen to this. The only possible attitude towards out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. Paul's right there. Have you done that? You got that habit or that thing that you've been struggling with forever. Have you said, and now uh, track with me here, have you said to anybody but yourself in your own head, I am making war against this? Have you prayed to God, God, I declare war against my flesh? Have you said to your own flesh, flesh, I declare war against this desire, this craving, this racism, this lust? Have you declared war? Are you thinking you live in peacetime because you've been made at Christ? Listen, hopefully you grasp this with me here. Lean in. You have been made at peace with Christ, but you still have a flesh that wars against you. And I think sometimes because we think we're in Christ and we're saved and we're just all going to get out of hell because we're in Christ, that we still don't have a flesh that is at war against us. Yes, you're at peace with Christ, but you're at war with your flesh. You have to declare it. Because there is something about war, like physical war, saving Private Ryan kind of, there's something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap, the rustling of leaves, and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. And I don't, I wonder what it would be like to be a part of a church where that was how we came after our flesh. Where we were on high alert. Not in our neighbors. Not in politicians. But in our very own lives. We stayed on high alert. Looking and listening for a twig to snap in our flesh. Looking for leaves of our flesh to ruffle. So that we could by the blood of Christ, see it killed. See, what this means is for us, if we're gonna be true Christians, we have to embrace a little bit more of a mean streak about us 
And it's not a mean streak, again, against other people. It's a mean streak against our own selves because now we understand that nobody goes to hell because of Satan. If anybody dies and goes to hell, it is because of sin. So that means that my greatest enemy is not Satan, that my greatest enemy is Trent Shoemaker. I see my greatest enemy in the flesh every single day, the one who will give Satan what he needs to rob me and my family and this church of its potential. Here's what's crazy. You maybe don't realize this. Satan knows so much more about your potential than you do. That's why he attacks you the way he attacks you, because he knows your potential. He knows what God can do in and through your fully surrendered life. Teenager in the room. That's why it feels really, really, really hard right now. There's a 70-year-old you know, 70 down people in the room. And look, we have wasted potential right now, young folks. But you still have this young life. And God has given in place on your life so much potential. You have no idea what he would want to do through some of you in this room. All of you in this room. He has a great call. And that's, that's why it feels as hard as it does right now. That's why many kids, even in as early as ninth grade, are struggling with thoughts, suicide, and being over with it because they have been tempted, they have been accused, they have been isolated, and they think that annihilation may be the only way out. But friend, do not listen to the voice of the enemy. Son, daughter of Christ, do not listen to the voice of the enemy. Your worth is not tied to what anybody else thinks about you other than Christ. So Paul expresses and explains, this is this, is this enemy that we have. He seeks to wage war against the enemy that you still have hanging on in your broken, fallen flesh. And then he starts to piece apart this armor. Verse 13. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm. He gets into this armor here. To stand, for the, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's talk about truth for a second. Again, I don't have time to go into deep dive and all these things. What I will tell you is that sometimes we can spend so much time piecing these little pieces of armor apart and leaning into, okay, why is the belt connected to truth and why is the breastplate connected to righteousness? And, and I did that for, for nine weeks straight. We leaned into all that, but sometimes if we're not careful, we'll miss what's really happening. We'll miss the forest for the trees. Understand this, when Paul is talking about this armor of God, what he's really talking about is this is how we take the gospel and apply it to every aspect of our life. So now the gospel is what's coming into closest contact with our flesh so that we're able to withstand all the things that Satan has tried to do to tempt us in our fallen flesh. So it's just taking the gospel. It's taking everything we talked about in Ephesians 1 and applying it to every aspect of our life. And so when it comes to truth, here's something I would lean into. And again, teenagers, pay attention to this. Your identity in life is based on, when it comes to truth, your identity in life is based on what the most important person in your life thinks about you. You have tailored your identity, what you think about, who you are, based off of who you think is the most important person in your life. If you're a young person in the room that may be a, a hot girl or a hot guy, what do they think about me? Well, my identity, how I feel about myself today is based off how I think they feel about me. Many of you in the room, you, first time you ever experienced this was from your earthly father. When dad felt good about you, you felt good about you. When dad was mad at you, you felt bad about you. It's just kind of how we're wired. 
And so if this is true, this is just one of those universal truths in life. If your identity is based on what the most important person in your life thinks about you, the question becomes, is that Jesus? Is Jesus that person? Is Jesus the most important person to you? And if Jesus really is the most important to you, then you will lean into what he says is true about you, and that will affect your identity in ways that blow your mind for the best positive place. That's why Paul, again, track with me. That's why Paul starts Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, all in identity, all in who you are in Christ. Because he knows if you don't get that, if your opinion of Jesus and how much you think Jesus thinks about you is not fully what you have just lined in your DNA, like it's what you just wake up eating, sleeping, and breathing on, if that's not you, then good luck winning this battle. If you don't really know what Jesus thinks about you, what Jesus did for you, how much the Father loves for you. If you don't know that, you're gonna be living a life based on everybody else's opinion of you. He goes on there and he says that if you really wanna figure that out, when it comes to truth, this is where some things kinda of get redundant. Well, he says the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Well, where is truth? Where does truth come from? Also the word of God. That's where some of these kinda of overlap and it's really just applying the gospel to our lives. The word of God is our source of truth. And I was struck by a story that I heard. I didn't know what was going on while I was there. Um, there's probably nothing I could have done about it except for pray. But Jessica and I used to live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, there's the University of North Carolina, Tar Heels, all that fun stuff. There at the University of North Carolina, there's a professor. He's a professor of New Testament studies, but he's an atheist. And again, you can do that kind of stuff in secular colleges. That's, a, that's totally fine. He is an atheist, and he is the professor of New Testament studies at the University of North Carolina. And what he does, he's probably been more successful at, at any, than any other professor there in North Carolina, maybe than any other in the region, about getting young kids, young college students, to let go of their faith. He has them come into the class. And again, as an atheist professor in a New Testament studies class, he knows that what's going to happen. Like, if you're one of the kids in the room and you're getting ready to go to college, and you see a class, and you've gone to church and grown up in church your whole entire life, and you see a New Testament studies class, I'm going, that might be an easy A. All right, like I at least know some stuff. Like if it's quantum physics, that's gonna be a whole new territory. If it's the Bible in the New Testament, well, I've gone to church for the last 10 years of my life. Maybe I at least have some groundwork. So you go and you take that class. And many college-age Christians go take that class. And he'll, in the first day of class, go, hey, how many of you are, believe in God? And the majority of the kids raise their hand. And then he goes, okay, how many of you have read this Cover to cover. There's this long pause and maybe one kid who was homeschooled raises his hand. <laughs> and he goes, my goal in this class is to get you to understand what you have already deep within your heart said is true. Because if you really believed that there was a God and he had given you his word. He had wrote down all these unique things about you. You must not really believe that he is God, or if you did, you would have read his word. You would have discovered his truth. So I'm gonna help you believe what deep down in your heart you never really wanted to believe, that there really was a God, because that's foolish. Because if you would, and if you really did, what would you have done? You would have read his word. Now, put yourself in that classroom. Would you have been one of the people who could have raised their hands and said, you know what? I do believe that the God of the universe, the God of angel armies, the God who made Mount Everest and the God who made my spouse, that God 
put his words into a collection of books and letters, and I have the living word of God. Do you just let it sit on the shelf? Is it just another app you have in a folder on your phone? Or have you read it like your life depended on it? Like it was the only source of truth in a world that's full of lies. See, what's crazy is we don't, we don't make this connection. Jesus said that Satan is the father of what? Okay, and he's our enemy. So to combat the father of lies, what do we really need? Truth. Where do we get truth from? Have you gotten enough this week to combat the amount of lies that have attacked you this week? Most of us in the room, if we're honest, we go, not even close. This isn't, this isn't going anywhere. At this moment, it's, uh, what's today's date? Anybody know? December 4th, 2022. This is still legal. Nobody's going to jail for bringing these in today. Still legal, 100%. You can download it for free. You don't have an excuse to not live by truth. Next thing he talks about is this breastplate of righteousness. And real quickly on righteousness, there's two types that he's after here. It's the imputed righteousness that is put on us when we, through faith, place our hope and trust in our surrendered life to Christ. And this righteousness that is Christ becomes ours. He takes on our unrighteousness at the cross and we take on his righteousness. It is put in us through faith upon our fully surrendered to him. That's imputed righteousness. And then there's imparted righteousness. And that's a righteousness that takes a little bit of time to develop. I would say it this way, just to make it into two words that you imputed, imparted. You guys aren't probably tracking with me on that very much. But let's lean into two different sides of things. Faith and deeds. We've talked about that, right? What saves me, my faith or my deeds? (laughs) Don't don't answer. Please don't answer. We'll get an argument. People start throwing chairs. Um, We got faith and we got deeds. You read your Bible, what you see is it's a combination of both. There are two sides of the track that is our faith. That faith is belief and action, belief and action, belief and action. And that's where this righteousness comes because I have faith that is belief and action. It goes on from there. End of verse 14. He says, stand therefore with the belt of truth, the breastplate of, uh, with the breastplate of righteousness, put on that. And then the next piece we see are shoes. Shoes for our feet to give us the readiness that's given by the gospel of peace. What he's talking about here when it comes to shoes is we place these shoes on our feet. And the shoes are not peace. The shoes is readiness, right? It's, if you did flannel graph like my kids do in, in children's ministry, a lot of times shoes are just the, shoe, the sandals of peace. Well, that's not what they are. They're the shoes of readiness that comes from a gospel of peace. And what this means is God has made us at peace with him. And because you're at peace with God... You're no longer at odds with God. You can be ready for whatever comes away because you're being ready with the good news of the gospel that this world cannot take anything from you, that this world cannot, maybe this world can kill you, but this world, if it does kill you, it's the best thing that can happen for you. You go be with God. That's the readiness that comes from the gospel. Peace. 16, and he says, in all circumstances, 
Take up the shield of faith. Again, this is this faith, this belief in action. And this belief that's in action, it can help us withstand these flaming darts that are coming from the enemy. I think these flaming darts are are primarily lies. This is what Satan does. The way he works, the things he does is he shoots lies at us. And we take our shield of faith and we put up our shield of faith and we let this be what combats all of his lies. And again, the thing that combats lies, what acts as our shield is the word of God. All of these pieces of armor, essentially, if you really get down into it, they all come back to the truth that is bound in God's word. And then he says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. This helmet of salvation, this, this constant reminder that protects our brain from all the mental attacks. This is where most of the war actually happens, right? It happens right in between your ears. It happens in this distance between your head and your heart. He says, put on the salvation, this never-ending promise that you are in Christ and nothing can change that. And he says, take up the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit. And again, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. And so... Any good soldier should be devoted to his weapon, to her weapon. You've seen those scenes in the, in the military movies, you know, where they lay out, you know, the AK-47 or whatever it is that they're, they're shooting, M-15, whatever, they, whatever kind of rifle they've got. And so they take it and they take it down. They, they, it's all apart and they time them. And then what do they do? Beep again and they put it all back together, clean it, look through and ready to go. They're becoming proficient in their weapon. And, and everybody in this room, nobody, like, I'm not going to tell you that you should have a devotional life to Christ and be like, oh, man, I would have had no idea that I was supposed to read my Bible. Like, everybody in the room, right? You kind of knew that was part of being a Christian, right? You're supposed to read this thing. Problem is, whether it's because of really devotionals you see at Lifeway, I think sometimes we can glamorize, I, I, did you do your devos, Right? I did my Devo time today and we brag about it and we, we post pictures of our, you know, our nice little leather Bible and our journal and our cool highlighters and our cup of coffee that we turned just right. And we, we Instagram the Devo time and we see those things and we want to have a great devotional life. And I think what happens sometimes is you start, right? You start having to get in God's word. And what do you, what happens? Let's just be honest. You go and you do it. And sometimes you get in there and sometimes you read some stuff and listen, this is a there's some unique things here in here. Sometimes you read some stuff and I was like, you're like, man, I don't know about Jezreel. I don't, I don't know what, what Nebuchadnezzar has to do with my life. Like I'm in debt. What is Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel going to fix with my debt? And then you pray and you feel like you hit the roof. You find yourself going, well, I, gotta, I, gotta, I need a few more hours of sleep because I had a rough night's sleep. I can't get up early. You know, I got to get the kids to school. And what, becomes, what, became, what was something you wanted to really be devoted to has now become something that you'll get to if you'll get to. And I think that happens because we think that you, we've bought the lie that when it comes to reading God's word, you're gonna start with just heel clicking devotion. You're not. It doesn't start with devotion. Do you know what it starts with? It's another D word. Reading God's word starts with discipline, all right? You're never gonna get to the place where you're devoted unless you start at discipline. Unless you're disciplined and you just get in here and you get in here because it's not an option, I'm at war. Like no military soldier is just like, you know what, I'm not gonna read the battle plan today. I'm not, you know, well, I'll get to it if I get to it. They know that they are gonna get a bullet through their brain. They're gonna get taken out. It's not, I'll get to it if I'll get to it. It's my life depends on it today. I am too busy not to be in this word. 
And then we get to this place with discipline. And after a little while, here's what happens with discipline. Discipline sparks desire. And you're like, oh man, I had a time. Almost everybody in this room who's ever had a Bible and read a Bible can take you back to a time where they just felt the rush of the Holy Spirit. They had an encounter with God that they could not put up against any pleasure they've ever experienced in this world. And they knew that that day they were had an encounter with the very word of God and the encounter with the very God behind his word. You've had that happen where a desire has been sparked. Once you go from discipline, you lean into desire, then you actually get to the place where you are fully devoted to the word of God and you can wield this weapon fight these battles. And that's what God is after. A church who who takes these weapons up and leans into them. Lastly, through prayer. The last part of our armor that oftentimes gets overused. This isn't what we do. Praying is not what we do to prepare for the battle. Praying is where the battle takes place. So what this means is a prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. That if you have no prayer, then you have no power. You can be suited up. You can have the best theology around righteousness and faith and and all these things, but you're never gonna get into a prayer life and a prayer devotion where you actually do war. This is what's wild. Okay, so remember when you read Ephesians 1? Where where are all our blessings at? Heavenly places. Now you're gonna experience stuff down here. You know, you you cuddle a newborn kid and you see them kind of make that little smiley face. That's a blessing. Don't, don't, Don't make it your own. You go eat a really good steak, that's a blessing. I'm hungry too. We'll get there. But it says, all blessings are made available to us in the heavenly places. In, in, in Ephesians, also remember, Paul said that Christ has been lifted up, magnified in the heavenly places, that he is the name above all names, the king above, that he says that's who Jesus is in the book of Ephesians. And then right after that, where does he say you have a seat? Right beside him. And here when he talks about spiritual warfare, where does he say that this, that, that this, where these rulers come from? Where are they active? He says that these, this is the spiritual dark forces in the heavenly places. This is why I want you to understand about prayer. There is nothing like prayer. When you, you don't have to close your eyes, but when you close your eyes and quiet the world around you, friend, track with me here. You are literally entering, entering into a different realm. Yes, you may still be in your Ford F-150 or your Toyota Camry. Yes, you may be in the lazy boy at your house. But when you close your eyes and enter into prayer, you are in a different realm and you are doing war. You are tapping into those spiritual, spiritual resources and blessings that are made available to you. The only way you can access them is through prayer. You access them through prayer and you begin to fight in prayer. And I would say to the people of our church, listen, some of you in this room, you can't go out and knock on doors. Some of you in this room, you can't go down and serve in children's ministry or student ministry. But every person in this room, red, yellow, black, white, old, young, rich, poor, we can be a people of prayer. There is no, there is no mental, dis, there is no physical disability that can keep you from being able to go to God and to, and to fight for your church, to fight for our city and to intercede on behalf of people who desperately need to hear this gospel that now we say we have. That's why, why Jesus, when he, when he was talking, when he was talking about the church, when he was talking about what it would be, he said he didn't say um, he didn't have zeal for his father's house and go, uh, my house, my, my father's house will be called a house of great preaching. 
My father's house will be called a house of, of great worship music. My father's house will be called a house with killer children's ministry or great student ministry or really welcoming people or kind of decent coffee. He said, my house will be called a house of prayer. And when my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways and lift their prayers to me, I will turn and heal their land. My house will be a house of prayer. And as we get ready to receive communion, we're gonna to turn to prayer. And we're gonna do some battles in the places of our prayers. There's a verse I wanna to, want to read to you out of the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11 and 12. Jesus is speaking through the apostle Paul and telling them how to take communion. And how even in this weird tasting wafer and Kool-Aid-esque juice, I know you may not think about this when you come to church and you do this, but what you hold in your hand, friend, are weapons. We don't, again, we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but it is through the flesh and blood represented in what you hold in your hands by Christ that we do wage war. First Corinthians Chapter 11, verse 12, he says, often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's two people who really need to hear that proclamation, you and Satan. The problem of evil came from you and Satan, and we're the two ones, me and Satan, you and Satan, we're the ones who need to hear this proclamation. Jesus knows that he died. There's no fool in that. The father knows what the son did. But weekly, and this is why here at MCC, we take communion every single week. We need a weekly reminder that we fight from victory, not for it. And, and here, and again, this is where you can get a little chip on your shoulder to remind the enemy, no, 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 your lies don't rank true anymore. When I take communion every week, it is a weekly reminder as I look to my left and to my right and I see the people who I've been reconciled to God with and I've been reconciled people to people with, it is a timely reminder that Jesus killed death. That Satan, you are a murderer, and what you want to do is to murder me. But death was murdered on the cross. When there was an empty tomb, it was the nail in the coffin. So as you take your communion today, know that you are proclaiming both to your flesh and to your enemy, the battle is won, and I fight from victory. Let's pray and receive it today. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for what you paid for us, a price we could not pay on our own. Help us to, as we commune with you to see that it is your flesh and blood where the battle was won so that our flesh and blood can be redeemed, restored, and made new, fully in you. I pray today that as we pray, the flesh, the collective flesh of MCC would be being crucified. Unfortunately, Father, Satan has found plenty to work with at churches. Father God, I don't want to lead a church. and I don't want to be a part of church where Satan can run rampant because he has plenty to work with because the flesh of the body refuses to die. 
And so today, Jesus, we lock eyes with you, our crucified Savior. And we remember your words, that if any man or woman would come after me, let them take up their cross, deny themselves, follow me. Your name.